This is The Law School Show. Discovering the person behind the resume. Bringing you their stories and their tips on how to succeed in your legal career. Catch it all here, right now, on The Law School Show. Hello and welcome to The Law School Show. My name is Nick Kreiper. I am a 1L at UOttawa Law and one of the hosts here at The Law School Show. Today, I am joined by law professor Craig Jones. Jones has an LLB from UBC and an LLM from Harvard. Currently, he teaches constitutional law and advanced advocacy at Thompson Rivers University in Kamloops, British Columbia. Jones has also been involved in some notable cases in recent years, including the death of Polish immigrant Robert Dzanski at YVR Airport and British Columbia and Imperial Tobacco, a case which establishes the right for the BC government to sue tobacco companies for healthcare costs related to their tobacco products. Jones has also been an important figure in the BC government. Jones has served on the BC Missing Women's Commission of Inquiry and is currently a member of the BC COVID Advisory Committee, which is tasked with finding solutions to court backlogs caused by the pandemic. Jones is also an accomplished author. He recently published an article detailing subconscious judicial bias and how the court system can manage this. In this conversation, I try to understand a bit more about Dr. Jones's impressive background. As law students, having someone with a distinguished resume can really make a difference in informing our early understanding of the legal profession and its possibilities. I talked to Professor Jones about his advice for law school, his research, and more. I hope you enjoy. Craig, thank you so much for coming on. Hey, my pleasure. Um, so I guess the first question I want to ask you is um, your decision to go into law. What made you want to go to law school in the first place? Well, you know, it's so long ago, I'm probably uh, I'm probably getting it wrong. But uh, my recollection is I, I'd sort of always thought that I had a good skill set for being a lawyer, but I just got badly distracted in my 20s with non-academic pursuit and then uh, and then sort of returned to the idea in my in my uh, later 20s and um, did a bit of undergrad and uh, uh, all, all just with the view of applying to law school and then um, uh, and then uh, yeah just applied and, uh, and decided to go and then you know to my shock and horror I found out that I really loved it I just uh, <laughs> I loved the idea of lawyering. I loved um, uh, litigation, and uh, uh, so yeah, never, never a moment's regret for sure. Yeah, because you ended up. Um, oh, so so you so you um, did you go to undergrad first, and then take a bit of a break, and then go back and try to improve your grades to get in? No, well, it's a bit of a long story. I I, I sort of cast around in my twenties, and I did uh, oh, a year of community college here, and then I did a year of jazz music at Malaspina, and then when I decided to get serious about going to law school, I just went to what we had in the day called the Open University, which was just. BC government sort of online education. I shouldn't say, even say online because this was really pre-internet days, so it was mostly mail. Um, you know, you, you you send in your assignments by mail. You get the feedback from the prof by mail. It was um, it was uh, pretty uh, crude by today's standards, um, but they gave me credit at, uh, at the Open University for the miscellany that I had. Uh, taken until that point. And so I, I just, um, 
I wanted to get enough credits to apply to law school, which at the time at UBC was two years worth, and they would accept you conditional on you finishing a third. So, um, so that's what I did. I sort of got an early, uh, early admission to um, UBC Law, and then, uh, and then kind of scammed my way into my undergrad degree while I was in law school. I asked the Open University people if they would accept law school credits into their credit bank for transfer to my general studies degree. And to my surprise, they said yes. And, um, uh, uh, well, they said yes, but then the law school wouldn't credit me for them. So I talked to the law school and they said, oh, we don't care. Sure, go ahead. So so I sort of double dipped on my uh, first year or two of law school courses and I ended up uh, getting a. I, I think my, um, I think my uh, parchment for uh, my undergrad says graduated in 1996, and then for law school it says graduated in 1997. So <laughs> it looks like I spent a year in law school. Anyway, a bit of a turgid story, but that's uh, that's how it came about. No, I like that. I, I honestly, I mean, I'm from BC as well, right? I'm from Kelowna. Right. I've never heard of uh, of doing a degree by mail. That's, that's yeah. Crazy. Well, it was it was pretty um, well advanced at the time. The um, Open University in British Columbia was patterned on the Open University in England, and uh, it was all correspondence courses. In fact, Open University administered all of the other universities on online. I mean, uh, um, mail order courses and then later it merged with thompson or merged with caribou college to become thompson rivers university and um and so then they offered to exchange my parchment so i got rid of my open university uh uh diploma and got a um, thompson rivers university diploma and then the funny part of the story uh, a few years after uh returning from my master's at harvard I got nominated to be a distinguished alumnus of Thompson Rivers University, and I had to wow. I had to break it to them that I'd never actually visited the campus. <laughs> <laughs> but they didn't mind either. So, uh, so, so that all happened. But you're from Kelowna. That's great. I'm from Vernon. That's my. Uh, oh no! That's way. where I grew up. Yeah. Yeah. Where you? Because um, yeah, for the viewers who don't know, I actually I I um, your brother's a professor as well. That's right. And I took, yeah, I took a few of his classes. Great guy as well. Oh, did you? I really enjoyed his classes. And uh, yeah, so you guys, you guys are both from Vernon. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's where we grew up. We were born um, abroad, but, uh, uh, but that's, uh, yeah, England. That's our hometown. I was born in England. Yeah. My brother was actually born in Singapore. Wow. Um, I'll tell you something you don't know about my brother. You might want to edit this out. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> okay. Uh, but he was born in Singapore when it was just splitting off from Malaya. And mm-hmm. as a consequence, he ended up with Singaporean citizenship, Malaysian citizenship, English citizenship. And then when we moved to Canada, he became a Canadian citizen. So my brother is actually the citizen of four countries. Wow. And uh, when he returned to Singapore to do some university in his late teens, uh, they tried to draft him. <laughs> so oh, careful man. of your citizenships yeah i guess so so i mean wow have imagine having four but yeah, yeah. anyway <laughs> so yeah so so you so you do this undergrad you do it over paper <laughs> you right mailing in your assignments and you end up at ubc so yeah. what was your experience at ubc like 
Oh, it was great. I mean, I'd never been to university before, right? So, so there was that. Um, the whole social scene, I sort of uh, squeezed it all into three years because I didn't really have a on-campus undergrad experience. But, you know, I had some just excellent professors, and uh, I just fell in love with the law and with legal thinking and uh, the legal community. I got a job at um, the firm where I'd eventually become a partner. I got a job there during my first year, so I felt fairly involved in lawyering kind of right right from the beginning and try to, try to help my students, um, uh, you know, get entree to the profession in the same in the same way. Yeah, that's fantastic. I mean, I, I ha- I'd have to ask like what your what your big takeaways were from it and what you think you learned. Because I mean, obviously, whatever you did, it worked out. You ended up at Harvard and had a, yeah. had a very successful career afterwards. Yeah, you know, it's it's hard to put yourself back in that position. It's now 20 some odd years on and, and think about what actually worked. But I know that what I thought was working at the time isn't, I think, you know, after about five years out of law school, I realized that the professors in the courses that I thought were the best at the time uh, weren't the ones that actually taught me things that, you know, I mean, I'll give you an example. Like, I really used to like, and I think a lot of students do, profs that would just kind of spoon feed it to me, right? What's going to be on the exam? Here's what the deliverables are. Bang, 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 bang. Here's the tests, all of that kind of stuff memorize all this stuff and then you know we'll plug you into an exam um and then i had a couple of profs uh, one in particular who you know he would walk into class and he would sit up at the front and he would fold his hands like this and scrunch his eyes closed and he'd just sit there thinking for two or three minutes it was excruciating you know and then he'd open his mouth and he'd say something like um uh Caveat emptor is a declaration of war on the consumer. And I go, what the hell is he talking about? Like, <laughs> this is torts, you know, teach me torts. And it wasn't until like five years out that I realized that really what separates a successful uh, lawyer, like a sort of next level uh, um, uh, lawyer, if, if you love it, is is the ability to be creative and um and uh, improvisational and to really just love those thoughts that, that you can have and, and, and tumble over one another because we never get to the point in practice, and I now have been practicing for 20 years, where I don't have to look stuff up. I still have to look stuff up, right? Uh, the best you can hope for is you sort of know where to find it. But, but the good lawyers just develop a judgment about how things are going to go and um you know predicting the outcome of a case is probably half of what lawyers do and then the other half is trying to influence the outcome uh of the case within a zone of discretion at least if at least if you're interested in in litigation and so those those people like uh like, uh, well, it was Steve Wexter was the prof that I was thinking of. I just realized five years out how valuable they just make you think, you know, they force you to think. Um, it's like walking into a cello master class and just having the guy, you know, 
you say, what's the, what's the essence of great cello playing? And he walks up and slaps you across the face and says, there, that's the essence of great cello playing. And you spend the next 10 yeah. years trying to figure out what the heck that meant, right? <laughs> so, yeah, well, you, I think it's also a matter of like, it's just, it's different from undergrad in the sense that like you're in a, someone, someone described, described to me this way once where he said it, it's a professional course, right? So when you're studying to become a professional, the approach just has to be different, right? When you're an undergrad, it's very easy to be spoon fed, right? Yeah. Because you're in classes and more or less, you're just like, okay, I, I don't really want to study. What's the least I need to know? Tell me what I need to know exactly. and then I'll regurgitate it and then I'll be fine. Exactly. And the idea is that there is a perfect exam, right? Uh, uh, the person, you, you know, everything to get a perfect score on the exam and everything else is just a deficit from the perfection. Whereas yeah. in fact, you know, I think um, studying law is much closer to uh, being an athlete or being a musician than it is to, to your undergrad. Because like you say, an undergrad, it's just developing a body of knowledge, regurgitating it on the exam, and then forgetting most of it afterwards. Whereas what we're doing is we're building muscle, right? We're building a certain muscle of legal reasoning. It takes practice. It's what we used to call time on instrument in music school, right? Um, and there's just no substitute for that. But when I write an exam, I'm trying to differentiate the students based on the quality of their thinking, not on the um, quantum of their knowledge, and that's very different from from undergrad. And, and still, students have a very tough time. I'm sure you're experiencing it, right? I mean, I still get questions in my class. I want to stick my finger down my throat. You know, is this examinable? You know, in my yeah. world, everything's examinable, right? I can ask you about the orbit of Pluto on a law school exam if I want to, because uh, I'm just trying to figure out, maybe I'm exaggerating slightly, um, I'm trying to figure out who the deep divers and the creative thinkers and the uh, uh, the virtuosos are, uh, not the um, uh, not the not the keen undergrad students. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I actually really like that analogy to to music. I, I played a bit of music as well when I was when I was young, and I, I would take it in high. I took a, like a lot of jazz in high school, and yeah, it's like when you learn a when you learn a scale or like. Remember, our teacher would put like a little jazz lick on the board, and it's like when it's time to solo, it's like okay, well, you have one one more thing that you can do, one more thing to add to your arsenal, right? And it's it it feels like it's more of that than it is like okay, well, do I need to know if like the pentatonic scale is going to be on my test for that? Like, yeah, no, like, that's, no, that's exactly it. Right? The point is that you learn as much as you can so that you get better. That's because right. At some so point, then you... and and yeah, I I think you're right. You were mentioning. For, for my experience, you know, what, what two months into this, I think it becomes pretty clear or a month into it. Ugh. <laughs> I think you realize pretty quickly. It's, it's, um, it's for your own benefit because, you know, you're going to have to do your own research. You're going to have yeah. to do these, do these things in, in the field by yourself. And yeah, it, it's just not going to help you to, to have people feed you answers because you have to be a professional at some point yeah no that's right i feel like my job is to you know let you feel the, the ground a little bit and then kick the feet out from underneath you and then you know let you struggle back to your feet and then kick the feet back out from <laughs> underneath you and keep you um you, you know the it's it's how you think off balance it's how you think uh, when the answers aren't clear uh, when knowledge isn't enough uh then you start playing on analogies and you start um uh, uh, you know, developing connections between different ideas. 
And you just can't, um, like, you can't have a rubric for that. You know, people say, do you like long exams? Do you like short exams? Do you like people to cite a lot of cases or, or a few cases, you know? And I can't give an answer because some A students do one approach and some do another approach. But one thing they have in common, I think, is that they, to use the musical analogy again, they show me their chops during the exams, yeah. right? They, um, they, they, they perform uh, to a high level. Yeah, and, and you found yourself probably doing that pretty early on in, in school as well. It's my guess. Well, I t you know, I had to adjust. I got to tell you, in my first year, I was a C-plus student. I was, like, right at the 50th percentile, maybe B-minus average. But uh, I had at least one, probably two C-pluses. So I was not setting the world on fire in my first year because I didn't have a clue what the game was, right? And I didn't even know what a university game was. You know, I thought it was all about shooting pool and drinking and it turned out <laughs> yeah turned out that was only a small part of it uh but i think by second year i just sort of learned how to play the game i learned actually what i was trying to learn and um uh, and my second year grades were much better and my third year grades were better still and so uh it was a uh, it was definitely a process for me but some hope maybe for your uh, for your colleagues if they feel like they're Heading to a strong C plus, it's not irretrievable. <laughs> yeah, and you know what? You're not you're not the first to um, to mention that. I um, uh, before I went to school, I remember talking to a lawyer, and he was saying how he finished second at his class in, in Calgary, and he was saying the first year he said it was all C's. Yeah, you know? and he said he said I just didn't know what to do, and he said after sitting down with the professors, it was just you know you you just you have to figure it out on your own, and um, you kind of have to develop your own little strategy for it, and. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess it all worked out. Huh? So second and third year, a lot better. Yeah, a lot better then. And and by then I was working, as I say, at a firm. So um, uh, I, I got to understand how the stuff actually worked on the ground and how what we were studying was, you know, it's, it's real difficult. And I, every school is a little bit different. And I think maybe even it's different from year to year. Um, but it's hard to get a... Um, in the first year, it's it's hard to get practical exposure, you know, that would inspire you to do to do much. And uh, just on my way here, the reason the reason I was late is I had lunch with a little group of first year students that I call my elite strike force. Um, with with apologies to uh, Rudy Giuliani, um, I'm I'm working on a human rights case, pro bono human rights case. And um, I told my students, my first year constitutional students about it. And a number of them said, hey, you know, could, could, could we help with that? Is there anything we can do? So I said, yeah, what the heck? So we put together this little group of 10 interested students. And, uh, you know, now we're three weeks into law school and they're actually working on, um, on this human rights case. It's heading towards a hearing in... Uh, next june so it should cap their year uh, cap their year quite nicely but i think wow. uh, you know stuff like that i think it, it just gives a bit of context to what otherwise would be um a, a sort of impenetrable exercise in uh, uh you, you know in sort of pure intellectual yeah. vagueness and uncertainty 
Yeah, I think that's true. And I think, yeah, I think there is a degree of that regardless, right? I mean, when you're first dealing with like, you know, for instance, like the very basic, what's a, what's a battery versus an assault and torch. Right. It's like, yeah, it, it, it's like, it, it's hard to, you think of like very basic examples, but of course it's like, how do, you know, the, the basic examples are from like the 1800s. They're not from, yeah. you know, 2017. <laughs> they've, they've been, yeah. they've been, those have been sorted out. And in a way you kind of, you can kind of figure it out on your own. Right. I mean, someone hits someone else, you know what, you know what it is, but it, it's, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a lot of practical application that I think I, I know it's going to help me as soon as I get an opportunity to go into a firm that, you know, you, you get to work with situations and then you leave and you go, okay, now I know what this is. Cause I've actually like played with the idea. Yeah. I think, you know, I think everyone gets there eventually. The, 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 the difficulty for students nowadays in my observation is just that the job, um, the hiring cycle now starts about a week into law school. It's just insane. You know, when I was doing it, I was lucky, as I say, I got a job in my, first year, but that was really unheard of in Vancouver at the time. And almost no one articled after second year, you know, articling was something that you sort of got around to thinking about at the beginning of third year. And there was enough jobs. So everyone had something set up by, um, by graduation. But now, I mean, I just feel for the students because the pressure to, I mean, to understand, I didn't even, I didn't even know the names of any lawyers when I started law school, right? How is how are students supposed to make meaningful decisions that are going to affect them for the rest of their lives, maybe, uh, you know, a week into law school? It seems really unfair, but that's the way the market is now. So I think we, especially those of us who practice, um, you know, and who have connections, I, I think we sort of owe it to our students to, um, to uh, you know, dip in and help them um, get their feet wet and uh in the practice as opposed to just um uh academia we just uh, they just don't have the luxury that we had when we were coming up yeah it's yeah it it feels like it gets more and more intense every year i i remember i had a guy and, and you you don't know very much i mean it, it's it's just the fact um yeah i i had a a guy i met once and he i can't remember what he did he, he worked somewhere in i think in finance in new york and he was talking about the law firm that uh, that his firm worked with. And he said, you know, they hire a lot of these guys from Harvard. Right. And he's like, you know, they, they'll come out of here in their first year and then they make photocopies. <laughs> yeah. just, you know, they, they, you don't, even if you know, even if you're, you know, the best of the best, it's like, you still have so much, so much more to learn. And yeah, it's, it's a, uh, I think it can be a, a daunting process. I, I'm happy to see that. Yeah. I, I think the institutions tend to recognize it though. And, and um, they try to set out and, and give advice uh, to yeah. students like, you know, for, for me, um, yeah, I, I'm definitely going to consider coming back to BC. That's, that's a big deal for me. And it was great to see that, you know, um, there'd be people in like the career advice center being like, okay, well, here's the dates for like Vancouver recruits in your second year and things like yeah, that. That's, great. that's all set out for you. Cause it, I, I think it would be much more stressful for me if I was sending out emails, cold calling everyone, like, you know, not sure if you're, if you're doing it correctly, but it's yeah. at, at least, it seems like there's some sort of process there. And yeah, it, it makes it a li little bit more reassuring. Yeah, well, your school might be a little better resource than ours. We have one extremely hardworking um, and very dedicated career development officer uh, and then a, a couple of sort of junior staffers that help her off the side of her desk. But, um, uh, uh, you know, as a consequence, we focus very much on BC and a little bit in Alberta, but uh, we can't afford to get too bothered about 
Ontario or, 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 or the markets out east. Yeah, I guess it, it's probably somewhat somewhat based on the situation as well. I mean, University of Ottawa, I think a, people come from all over, right? Just sure. naturally because it's because of the government town. But yeah, anyway, I, I should ask you. Um, so so you finished up at UBC, you finished your degree, yeah. and then did you take a you took a few years to work right before you went on to Harvard? Yeah, I I, I landed at a really 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 good firm. It's now Norton Rose, but at the time it was Bullhauser and Tupper, uh, which was. Uh, regional firm only, but one of the biggest. So one of the top three or four big firms in Vancouver, but just super nice, supportive people. And so, um, yeah, I got working on that uh, right away, and I got very involved right away in the tobacco litigation. We were representing the province against the tobacco companies. And then um, I started teaching at UBC, just doing a course on... um, class actions just as an adjunct and found that I really liked it and wanted to sort of have part of my life being academic. And so, and I probably shouldn't say this because no one should expect that anyone will do this nowadays, but so my old firm might get mad at me, but um, I basically pitched to them that they should pay me to go to Harvard for, (laughs) for my master's. And that I would then bring back all of this knowledge and credibility and whatever the hell else you're supposed to bring back from Harvard. And they agreed. And so, um, you know, although I paid my own tuition, which was God a lot in those days, um, uh, they actually paid my salary through, uh, through my master's degree. And uh, God love them. Uh, very, very supportive people. And then, then I came back and practiced with them a few and kept teaching a little bit at UBC on the side and kept writing a lot. Like I had a fairly, um, uh, I, I wrote a lot of stuff long before I was a full-time academic. So that assisted me when I decided to, to teach as my primary job and litigate off the side of my desk instead of the other way around. So how did you come up with that, with that teaching opportunity? What happened that, uh, uh, at UBC? Well, initially, I just, um, you know, I, I, I thought I wanted to try teaching. I knew that, um, you know, universities are, um, law schools are uh, always keen to get cheap or free content to for their upper year courses, right, to diversify. And, and I, I, you know, the custom at the big firms in Vancouver, I don't know if it's still this way, but if you were, uh, if you were at a big firm, it was sort of considered a service, not a part-time job. So the expectation was that you would return uh, any fees that you were paid by the university to the law school as a donation. And so for the, so the law schools were kind of keen on having big firm people teaching courses for free. Right. And so understanding that I I pitched a um, class actions were just then just starting off in BC and because of tobacco, uh, I was studying large-scale litigation, aggregate litigation, and so I thought with some arrogance that as a, I don't know what I was, a one- or two-year call that I should pitch this course to UBC, and and they said, yeah, let's give it a try, so so that's how that happened, and then after I came back from Harvard, um, they took me on doing a little bit more, so I started teaching torts and uh, 
and the class actions. But again, just part time while I was practicing. Yeah, how have you found that balance? By the way, do you find it because you still do this now, correct? You're practicing while you're, yeah, um... yeah. You know, I think I think you get a lot better at time management as you get older. So you look at it on paper. And it looks like I'm doing an awful lot at once, right? I mean, just stupid little things. I'm on the university senate, um, uh, you know, God knows how many committees, um, and then practice, and then teaching, and then the pro bono stuff, um, supervising students and whatnot. But I really, actually, I feel like I'm my life is more relaxed now than it was when I was just practicing full time. And I think it's just, you get better at it as you get older, at just juggling stuff and, and stuff takes about a third of the amount of time it used to take when you were younger and you have a lot of people helping you that you didn't have when you were younger. You know, <laughs> I, I mean, I have juniors on files now, right? So. Yeah, so, that's uh, probably a big one. Yeah. You can, you can spread the love. Um, so yeah, I, I don't honestly feel. I mean, my wife might might tell you differently, right? Because uh, uh, I think um, uh, you know there there are sacrifices, there are trade offs with home life. If you want to be excellent, I think at anything outside the home, uh, there are trade offs. But um, we've we've survived twenty two years now, and since I moved out to Kamloops and set up at the university here, the um, and we, we, we joked, my wife and I, that after 15 years of marriage, we we're going to try living together. <laughs> uh, and it's worked out well. Turns out she's nice. I uh, got a couple of great kids. So, um, uh, yeah, no complaints. But, I mean, work-life balance is, is something a lot of people talk about. But I think if you're really passionate about the work you do, it's less it's less of an issue. I mean, I just, I don't think, and, and I'm, I don't think I'm exaggerating, there's ever been a day when I've, God, I don't want to go to work today. This, you know, I'm just dreading. Wow. I've always felt like, I mean, there's always been days when you've got a lot of stuff that you would be way down your list of things to be doing, right? Try to get those out of the way first thing in the morning and uh, and then enjoy the rest of it. But I mean, we're so privileged, right? We're, and that's a word that's overused, I think, a lot lately. I, I mean, we we think. We read, we write, and we talk, and then someone pays us for it, which is an astonishing um, economy when you think about it, right? I, I tell my first-year students, you know, you've got a skill set that at any other time in, in or place in, in history would probably just have got you stoned to death by your fellow villagers. <laughs> You know, and and now you make hundreds of thousands of dollars a year uh, uh, doing those things. And it's it's not I mean, there are long hours, but this is not hard work. Right. We don't know what hard work is. There are people in this world that work hard and they get nothing. We do not work hard. And if we can manage the long hour part of it, it's a it's a blessing. It's a wonderful career. Yeah, it's it's. I really like how you put it. I think I think you talk it down a little bit. I think it could, I think it could be a bit stressful for some people, but you know what? I I think it's I think it's a good point. You know, it's mental versus physical work is very very different. You know, I I remember especially you know when I was younger. I don't. Know, it's probably the same with you. 
um, where you do physical work as you're, as you're trying to figure out what, what career you're going to go into. And yeah, I, I gotta say, I mean, being busy physically is very different from being busy mentally. Yeah. You know, it, it, when your whole body's tired, you can't keep going, but you know, yeah. if your mind's tired, you can take 15 minutes and then, and then wake up and keep going. And yeah, I mean, I, I think, I think that's really good to hear because I think it's, it's, um, you really are privileged, right? I, I think that's. I think that. I think it is fair to use that word in this sense, right? Because you're. Well, and even that, you know, really, I mean, what you talk about with the stress, it's you know, it's it's true. But I think stress is is um, maybe I'm going to get into trouble for saying this, right? It doesn't really come from outside. It, it, you know, I mean, you're going to be put in stressful situations, but unless you do like death row litigation or something like that, like no one's going to die if, 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 if the memo isn't done just so, or, 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 or whatever, like you got to put it in a bit of perspective that, um, uh, you know, there are people in this world getting up at four o'clock in the morning and crawling out on a giant garbage heap to look for recyclable, electronics that someone has thrown away so they're picking through dog shit forgive my expression looking for this stuff to make their 16 cents for the day so they can buy enough rice to live to the next day right you know tell me about your stress partner at uh uh you know law firm x it's it's uh you know it may be a challenge for you to manage but um you're uh you're still in the top probably two percentile of low stressed people in the world. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you're right. It's, it's contextual, right? Because there's a, there's the, the stress that comes from, from trying to do well within, within your job. There's also the stress that comes with, you know, like you're saying, like in those situations where it's like survival, right. And those, you have to understand that those are not the same, right? Like one of those is, is a traumatizing experience and and something that you really can't even have time to reflect on when it's going on. It's, it's, it's very difficult. And then you have one where, you know, the, the stress is like, Oh, well, I hope my boss doesn't get too mad if this memo isn't, isn't perfect, you know? And and that's, it's just, yeah, yeah, it's, it's important to understand. And I I think in, in a way it, it, it kind it can kind of calm you down too when you're in in situations like that just taking a step back and realizing like one of the students i was talking to today uh, one uh, well exactly i mean you can if if you find your life is too stressful as a partner at a big firm downtown then you know what move to fort st john and do you know a nice wills and estates practice or real estate or whatever like we can we can have as much or as little as we want if we're not demanding that we have to be the $500,000 a year person, right? If you're willing to accept a, uh, a more modest middle-class, upper-middle-class um, income and lifestyle, then your prospects are, you know, your freedom is unlimited. And one of the difficulties, another difficulty of, of students, of course, nowadays that we never had is the, is the sheer cost of the education and the debt load that's out and you know one of the great sources of sympathy that my students have uh, when i talk to them is uh, you know some of these people we have very high tuition by bc standards it's about twenty-two thousand a year um which is sort of on ontario level but we you know so we have kids graduating with one hundred and twenty thousand dollars in student debt right you do not have the options that i had 
to follow my muse, right? Uh, for a few years out. If you've, especially if you're starting a family or something like that, you've got to go where the money is. And I think, I think a lot of students are ending up in careers that they wouldn't have chosen um, just out of expedience to get that few extra dollars a month where they can make the payments on their, on their loans. And that's really too bad. I mean, that's something I think we have to think about as a legal community, whether we want to keep going down that road. It's, it's, I think it's destructive. I think it's bad for everybody. Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, it's, uh, it's difficult in the sense that I, I think, um, when I look around at my colleagues, right. And this is a matter like I'm 23 years old, but there's people in in my, in my small group block, right. Of, of, of about 20 students who have, some have children, some have, you know, Mm -hmm. some are, some are older it really doesn't matter. Um, but it, it's, it's basically this idea that, you know, you have to, you have to start in, in what I hear a lot is we have to start in corporate law and right. then go from there and make some money. And then, you know, you, you get tired and then you go somewhere else. And it's, yeah, it's, it's not, um, it's not a fun process, but I, I wonder what the solutions would be to something like this. Like I, I genuinely don't know because I, I figured the reason is, is fairly just the reason that tuition so high is fairly, just standard right is that a lot of people want to go to law school and they're willing to pay it yeah um yeah and i I, you know i i think it bears emphasizing though to students because when they start in law school everyone's throwing lines of credit at you right because they know you're good for it at that point no one fails law school anymore everyone's going to get a job everyone's going to be able to repay it and the temptation is, oh, great, now I can get that nice little Honda that I always wanted. I'm going to get an apartment more than I would otherwise, you know. And so they're ending up 120000 in debt when they might have got away with eighty, and then they find that, they're, that their prospects are, are, you know, their choices are limited. There's a really good book I'd recommend it to you or your student uh, colleagues that uh, I, I'm trying to remember the name of the author. It's called Broken Contract. And it's about a guy that went to Harvard Law School, and he made it his mission to try to figure out why students, why 80% or something like that of their incoming first years said that they wanted to practice in public interest or government work. And that when they graduated, 80% plus ended up working at corporate firms in New York or, or Boston. And so he looked at the various sort of ordinary explanations, um, you know, for that, the economic pressure, the temptations, the opportunities, all that. And he said, that's probably part of it. But he thought, you know, what it really came down to is that law school selects for um, a certain type of people, uh, a certain type of thinking. And that thinking is uh, to keep as many options open as you can with every decision. Right. And so the perception is, and it's probably true still, that you can start at a big firm on Bay Street or or in Howe Street in Vancouver, even if you want to, even if you think your heart's in being a prosecutor in Fort St. John. If you start downtown Vancouver, you can always become a prosecutor in Fort St. John. Right. There's a there's a path that could end up there. Whereas if you start at Fort St. John, you're never going to be a big firm lawyer downtown. That's the perception. And so if you want to keep your options open, you go to the big firm downtown. The problem is in order to keep your options open, you have to stay there. 
Yeah. And so there's there's this incredible, terrible irony of people that end up in a at the top of the pyramid where they're miserable and they stay there for their whole entire life just so they have the chance of being down further on the pyramid, which is where they know they would be happier, right? Yeah. And it's a... Uh, I really think there's a, there's, there's a lot of truth in that. And, and we've got a lot more mobility now than we did even 20 years ago. You know, people can go up the pyramid in ways that they probably couldn't before. But, you know, I, I always say to people that now 20 years in, looking at my cohort of graduates, the people I articled with, the young associates and whatnot, the ones who are really happy are the ones that committed to a, a path less beaten early on, but just that they were passionate about. And then they'll become excellent in it, right? If you're passionate about it, you become excellent. And so even though you might think that doing criminal defense work isn't the most lucrative thing, the people I know that could have gone to a big firm but went into criminal defense work and turned out to be excellent at it, were phenomenally successful now, judges or, you know, uh, uh, partners at, at, at criminal firms. So, I mean, it's, it's cliched and it's way easier to say, say it than do it. Um, but don't settle for a job that you're not passionate about just because you think it's going to keep your options open to make the move at some point in the future. Yeah. You also got to wonder too, I mean, how, how, how much, how good you're going to get at that, that, that job that you don't enjoy. Yeah. I mean, if, if it's really like, like for me, I, I know I don't have, I never, I didn't take business school. I have very little interest in, you know, tax law, right? If I were right. to throw myself into tax law, I, w I don't think I would be a very good lawyer, but, you know, yeah. I, I just, and it, I, not because of anything else, but I, I really think it's just because I don't think I would like it. And yeah. I think it would really be hard for me to, like, you know, you'd be sitting there hour 37 out of whatever yeah, right. weekday right. and you're like, I can't go anymore. Yeah, and, I mean, um, it's not just uh, it's not just bad for you. It's actually a terrible inefficiency in the market of, of, of uh, you know, because maybe that guy in Fort St. John that's got a his criminal practice would be perfect as a corporate lawyer downtown. But but uh, people get frozen into their uh, into their paths. Yeah, it's true. It's, it's kind of, um, it's, it, it's, a it's a weird system that we have, <laughs> let's put it that way. And, um, yeah, it, it's tough because you don't really know how to fix it, right? There's not really a clear solution, but, um, I guess, like you said, we, we do have, um, I guess you can sit back and kind of accept you do have a, we are in a very lucky position. You know, I think, yeah. And honestly, I think they could fix a lot of it tomorrow if they would just eliminate or cap at a very low level tuition fees. You know, I think that would make the exit, the, the market of, for graduates, it would revolutionize it if they didn't have to keep an eye on their, on an inordinate amount of student debt. And, um, you know, it would force, uh, it would force different areas of law, different practice areas to um, sell themselves to, uh, uh, you know, in the competitive marketplace, rather than just saying this is our sweatshop and we're we have better <laughs> yeah. we have better lunches than the sweatshop next door. Yeah, choose your sweatshop. Yeah, it's a good <laughs> expression. For, <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I should say um, 
I don't know how much time we have. I, I know you probably got to get going and stuff. Yeah, no, you know what? I was late, so I'm in your hands. Uh, I, I can go till three thirty if um, uh, if you want, and you can edit some of my rambling out uh, later if uh, if you want to talk about um, uh, the article you mentioned. We can uh, we can pivot to that. Yeah, I think that would be awesome. You know, I, I read this article. Um, I read it twice, actually. I read it uh, a couple of days ago, and then I read it again. Good Lord. Just before we started It's talking. not a short article. Yeah, That's very dedicated. <laughs> no, it's not. You know what? Um, I might be a little bit behind on my property readings, but it's okay. We'll make it through. We'll survive. Like you said, <laughs> no one fails, right? So <laughs> I'm sure it'll be okay. Um, but I, 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 I read it, and actually, instead of me describing it, why don't you talk a little bit about it? Yeah, well, I, it's it's about what what they call heuristics and biases, which are the sort of subconscious decision making processes that we've evolved in a very different time, and that they sort of misfire nowadays. But they misfire in predictable ways, and so they can be manipulated by advocates. Um, and, and I mean, maybe I'll just start with an example that that got me really interested in the field. Uh, of psychology and, and neuroscience and how it affects law. Um, uh, a few years back, they did a, a study of the Israeli parole courts, and there was, um, uh, I think there was 11 judges or something like that, and they were all making decisions about whether the offender before them got bail or whether they had to stay in jail for another night. And so there was a bunch of decisions, yes, no, yes, no, yes, no, yes, no, through the through the day. And I think the average was around 20 decisions per judge per day, right? That's a lot of decisions, but they're all binary decisions, just yes or no. And so it makes a pretty good data set if you can um, experiment with what's actually affecting those decisions. So, so anyway, they tracked a number of things about, the, about each uh, case that went before these judges. And one of the things they tracked is what time it started and what time it ended, because they wanted to find out how long the decisions took. But then when they looked at their data, uh, what they showed was that your chance of getting parole went from about 70% first thing in the morning to about 4% last thing in the day, with a spike after lunch and another spike after the snack break in the afternoon. And, and so psychologists explain this is something called decision fatigue, that our decisions get worse uh, through the day as our energy depletes. And we've evolved a way of dealing with that, which is as the day wears on, uh, our decisions tend to get more conservative. Um, you know, leave it, leave it alone, decide tomorrow, don't worry about this today, et cetera. And so for parole, what that meant is they were just saying, ah, I don't want to take any risks let's just leave this guy in jail for, for another day. And, and that got me, I, 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 then, and then, you know, people argue about it, but, but most agree that, that decision fatigue is, is a actual evolved response that it's one of the ways in which we conserve uh, the energy of thinking because thinking is very um, conscious thinking. Decision-making is very energy intensive. Uh, so then I started looking at these other things that that systematically affect decisions. And one of the studies that, uh, this isn't in the article because I think it happened afterwards, but we did a study at uh, TRU where we looked at every second-degree murder conviction in Canada for a period of 23 years. 
and you know, in second degree murder, the sentence is life imprisonment, but there is a discretion with respect to uh, the parole and eligibility period. It's between 10 or 25 years. And that's the effective sentence, right? It's 10 to 25 years, really. And then when we mapped all this stuff out and graphed it and analyzed it, we realized that these numbers weren't, as you would expect, scattering on a, on a patterned line across the between 10 and 25 years. And, and what we found was that, that there were huge spikes at 10, 15, 20, and 25 as a number for the sentence. And that actually you were twice as likely to get an even-numbered sentence as you were to get an odd-numbered sentence. And so that's, I mean, it's completely extra-legal, right? Because nothing in the criteria, in sentencing criteria, says even numbers are better than odd numbers. (laughs) And so what this is is a little vestige of our lizard brain that happens to prefer even numbers over odd creeping forward and influencing legal decisions where they shouldn't. You know, we have people, a lot of people, sitting in jail for an extra year because our lizard brain prefers 14 years over 13 years, right? And conversely, we probably have a roughly equal number of people that got out a year early because 11 is a better uh, or a worse number than 12, right? So, or, or 10, whatever. So this this... This weird preference that we have for even numbers is one of these things that's affecting it. And there's dozens of these very peculiar subconscious biases from this process called heuristic thinking, short, fast, frugal, subconscious, innate decisions that then bubble up. And and so I got to think, well, how, how does, you know, how do litigators manipulate this? And and we've evolved, I think, to manipulate quite a few of them. The legal system has evolved to counter some of those influences and and try to make us more rational. But now our knowledge of the processes is so much more explicit and exact that the prospects for manipulation by a team of lawyers backed by a team of psychiatrists and, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, neuroscientists in a, in a big case, the um, the prospects for manipulation I think are unprecedented nowadays. That that you can um, tug on people's subconscious uh, uh, processes, and and so uh, you know I teach advanced advocacy and um, uh, as as one of my courses and. Initially, my advanced advocacy course was like everybody else's advanced advocacy courses. This is how you do a cross-examination. This is how you enter an exhibit. This is an opening statement. This is a closing statement. But now I start with, you know, this is how our minds evolved. And, you know, your mind evolved in a society where there was 100 or 150 people. You knew all of them. If you ever encountered a stranger in your life, it would be very unusual. And the way we relate to people, our assessments of credibility, our assessments of um, uh, of uh, whether we want to defer or or comply with somebody, all of these things are very crudely evolved. Well, I shouldn't say crudely evolved. 
but they were evolved in a in a much more different society than we now try to exercise them. So, so for example, um, we try to measure as a judge, we try to measure someone's credibility in part by the amount of confidence they project. In absolute terms, if they project more confidence, we find them to be more credible. Now, studies have shown that the amount of confidence that you project actually does not relate at all to whether you're telling the truth or not. But what does matter is the level of relative confidence that you have. So if you're a person who isn't very confident generally, then if you are particularly confident in saying something, then you should be judged as more credible. Because in a society of 150, when everyone knows everybody, we've got a baseline for everybody else, right? But now we're dealing with strangers all the time. The judge doesn't have that baseline. And so the judge defaults to this very crude, inexact measure. And that's not, I mean, that's not the only one. We find, believe it or not, truthful pe- uh, sorry, uh, tall people to be more truthful than short people. Uh, we find better-looking people to be more truthful than non-better-looking people. It's because, you know, when we evolved, truth didn't matter so much. What mattered was who you want to be allied with in this tiny society of 100 or, or 150 people, right? And so... I think the effective litigators are going to be the ones that exploit those things like affinity relationships uh, that project a certain amount of, um, uh, well, that come across as someone with whom you would like to be allied if you were, you know, in uh, in uh, Squid Game. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, uh, uh and so all those primal things uh, sort of bubbling up. And so that's the way I teach now advanced advocacy. We sort of start with that crazy theory and then actually watch how it, watch how it plays out in, um, uh, in everyday life. And I, the, the older I get and the more I litigate, the more convinced I am that, um, you know, the legal realists uh, had it right in the early uh, 20th century that, um, that well, in fact, the the Greek rhetoricians had it right twenty five hundred three thousand years ago. Yeah. You know when they said logic, logos is only a third of what we do as advocates. The rest is pathos, emotional appeal, and ethos. That is the status and the stature of the of the advocate. And everything we're learning from neuroscience and the little buttons that get pushed in the back of our brains is fitting so neatly into that ancient rhetorical analysis it's uh, uh you know yeah. everything old is new again so that i mean that just really 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 interests me and now that we're entering the age of um, you know artificial intelligence and we're going to have very soon decision making computers and algorithms that are far better than human beings yeah well this this is why i wanted this is why i wanted you to talk about it because i thought i i read this and i couldn't I couldn't believe it because it makes why. Well, okay, let me let me see how I'm going to word this. I could right because it it seems so true, right? I mean, um, even even these little examples where they're saying you know people who um, seem to show wealth seem to have more um, seem to be, appear more trustworthy. It's like okay, well, I could see how this could be have a real effect in society, right? I mean, obviously, if you're walking around, you know, you appear before a judge and you look homeless, there's going to be a look of like okay, who is this guy? 
and then you know someone comes in and they look like they're you know a very very successful lawyer it's like okay i could see i mean these are almost like little things that we've known for years yeah right but the issue which i thought was was really well put was that now we know so much more than we ever did right it's not just like your mother being like well you want to look nice for school right because you know that everyone else is going to look good and you don't want to look bad it's it's more just like we know how to manipulate this and we know how to take advantage of it and how like should can we do anything about it or should we yeah. right and I, I i thought the um i thought one question i want to ask you was what do you think um any solutions would be because I noticed in the article um, you didn't directly say like oh we need to uh, we need to do this to to solve the problem mm-hmm. it was more just we want to at least raise awareness first yeah well and and that's the question I get you know whenever I talk to judges or lawyers or anybody else about this you know who are interested in the accuracy of decisions you know how do how do we improve it how do we counter these things. And, you know, there's uh, a lot of experiments that have been done suggesting that it's very, very, very hard uh, to counter them. You, you sort of have to put systems in place. You have to leave judges enough time to make thoughtful, reflective decisions, not just at the end of a case, but actually throughout the case when all of the little decisions are being made that are eventually going to um, gonna pile up. The, you know, the, the corollary of that question, what do we do about it, um, uh, has an ethical dimension for lawyers too, right? Because, and, and, the, and the Greek rhetoricians recognized this and they discussed it openly, you know, that there are going to be people who are better advocates than other people, just as there are people who are better wrestlers or whatever. And what does that mean? That means that they are better at influencing people based on non-rational, non-legal grounds, right? You're not talking about the criteria for sentencing. You're throwing out an even number because you know it's going to be more persuasive than an odd number if, uh, if you're arguing about sentencing. So given that, you know, you have that range of skill sets, what, what are the ethical obligations of lawyers? And what they arrived at was deeply profound and maybe a little bit troubling. They said, well, there's two important reasons why that's not uh, a deal breaker for our system. Uh, one is that we don't get paid. And the second is that we have a choice about which cases to take. Now, we've got to throw that we don't get paid stuff out the window nowadays, right? Because we have a legal system that is many ways premised on mercenary availability. But the second part of it, uh, the the longer in my career I go, and I I appreciate that I have more luxury to, um, you know, just take the cases that I want to take now than I did very early on in my career. But really, that is the ethical decision. If if you are going to be pulling out all the stops and using every weapon in the arsenal in service of your client, right, you've got the... um, you know, the Google choice there. Don't be evil, right? Don't don't put your talents in the service of a cause in which you don't believe that in which you can't support. And I think if you find that um you know you can one of my profs at Harvard was Alan Dershowitz and um I was a huge fanboy of Alan Dershowitz in the early days before he 
kind of went a little crazy in his later years, but, uh, <laughs> but it was a thrill to be in his class. And he had this book called Letters to a Young Lawyer. It's a really good book. Um, it's just a very short little book, but I had him sign it for me and, uh, 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 at the front of the class one day. And he wrote, um, do good and do well. And that was his, um, you know, sort of motto that it's actually, you might not make as much money as if you were only concerned with doing well, but you don't have to be so poor as to, you know, you don't have to go out there and be a poverty lawyer and, and burn your gowns and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Like we're in a nice situation where we can, we can be a little bit selective about our clients and the kind of causes that we want to do. And we could still make an obscene amount of money by, you know, global standards, by any rational standard. Uh, and so that was kind of inspiring. So, so that's sort of where everything leads me back to on this. I don't know if we can, I mean, we're going to keep trying to figure out how we can minimize the distorting effects of these subrational inclinations. But as long as we can't, um, then we're going to use them. And we always have, like you say, you put a witness on the stand in a suit and tie because you know it makes them more credible. Uh, it's it's a lie because you know that the only time they wear a suit and tie is when they're on the stand in court, <laughs> right? Otherwise, they're out there holding up banks or whatever else they're they're, they're doing. Uh, but we do that because it has a subconscious influence. So we've always manipulated these things. Now we're going to get even better and more precise at it. Um, and 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 for me, it just heightens this idea uh, that you can't beat them, so you are joined to them, regardless of whether you want to be or not. The fact is, you're that's the game you're in. And you know, do you want to? Who are you going to serve uh, at the end of the day? And and I think you can serve. Uh, clients and causes uh, that are very satisfying and you can also do very well um, uh, doing that. You, you just might have to be prepared to work a little bit harder than the average bear and um, maybe take a little bit longer in building your career than just going to a big firm and having your career laid out for you. That was, yeah, boy, let's talk about rambling. I'm sorry about that, Nick. <laughs> <laughs> no, I like that answer. You know what? Like I said before, there's no, nothing wrong with rambling. You know, it's 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 interesting. And listen, you get to cover more topics. So, yeah. And you know what? We're, we're right by 630 now. So I'll say thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, my pleasure. And uh, happy to come back anytime. You've just been listening to The Law School Show. You can find more episodes on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and now on Spotify, or on our website at thelawschoolshow.com. If you liked what you heard, like us again on Facebook, or follow us on Twitter for the latest updates. Human stories, new legal topics, and career-advancing advice right to your earbuds. Catch it all here, next time on The Law School Show.